Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. Every week, the three of us call in and record a conversation about the larger scope of design and everything related. Here we go. You guys, you guys, I got, I got to talk about something. I'm, I'm feeling a little down. I, 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 I generally keep a very optimistic attitude on the world and the human condition. Uh-huh. But I, I went to Atlantic City for the first time, and oh, I'm just that's, so oh. you're you're just full of sadness. <laughs> I I didn't know a place could be so sad and soul crushing. I mean, so, so first of all, like I'm not the kind of person that you would ever want to take to Atlantic City. I don't really drink. I don't gamble. I'm just not fun in general. Right. Um, but you know, my, my cousins were going there. I have a lot of cousins on my dad's side of the family, and they were going down there for a night before my uh, family's big like beach vacation week, which is uh, this week. Um, so they invited me down. I said, "Of course, you know, I'll come catch up with my cousins. This will be fine." I took the Greyhound bus in from Baltimore, which was an affair in in and of itself. But then just arriving in Atlantic City, and I could not believe how soul-crushing a place could be. It was just, it was terrible. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to get over it. I have this cloud hanging over me of just dirty Atlantic City casino cloud just floating above my head. Well, I, I will uh, say terrible. the live tweet of the uh, bus trip was hilarious. I'm, I'm glad you could enjoy it because it was just truly sad and light. I mean, you see the <laughs> picture I, I tweeted of the guy driving the bus filling out like a form on the steering wheel? Because he wanted to die too. I, he was on 95, <laughs> going 70 miles an hour, and he had some extremely... I don't know if it was, like, his taxes or, like, some sort of health insurance claim. It was a really complex form. He was filling out for a solid, I would say, 9 or 10 minutes on the steering wheel. A lot of people say uh, he died doing what he loved. This guy <laughs> had a real opportunity to die doing what he hated. Yeah. Which is, I think, maybe better. Do you think it's better to die doing what you hate? Yeah, because it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was my first time going to any of these casinos. I'd never been to a casino before in my entire life. I've only walked through them. And, I mean, I'm going to try and put aside the the horrible, horrible depression that it brought on. I, I, I tried to um, – I was really interested in the casino as a, like, design case study, actually, looking at the way in which they trap people there and convince them that they're winning money when they're actually losing money and make people sort of get stuck to this place. It's like the perfect social engineering experiment, like – Every every single piece of it has been designed so that you don't know where you are. You think you're doing better than you are, I, and I love the 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 uh, free booze part where you go, oh yeah, free booze. And then you realize you spent all your money on. I didn't even I didn't even know drunk. that was a thing. I didn't even know that if you sat down at a table, people would just bring you whatever you want all night long. I had no yeah. idea. It's insane. And then it's like I I was thinking the whole time about how this is like design used for evil. And I was thinking about, like, Disney World and how this design sort of used for happiness for the most part. I mean, everyone's trying to make money. But the wayfinding and sort of experience design at a place like Disney World is really excellent, uh, mostly to bring to bring children joy, I choose to believe. Where at a place right. like this, it's, you know, to get people trapped there and suck all the money out of them, whether they can afford it or not. It actually, <laughs> it reminded me a lot of, of sort of my feelings about Facebook uh, in that it's just like this really addictive sort of environment that sucks you in, doesn't let you go, except in Facebook's case, they're just getting clicks and eyeballs out of you, and in the casino's case, they're taking, like, your 401k and, uh, and your second <laughs> mortgage. Little little do we know about Facebook, they could be taking your 401k. Let's they hope, at least have hope. the information to do so, so yeah. you, you're not really sure. Yeah, well, let's hope that the Facebook people don't meet up with the casino people. Oh, my God. Be... 
You just wrote the next 1984. Oh, it's going to be a black hole. It's terrible. It's dividing by zero. Don't do it. Oh. And then I so I was gone this whole time. I, I tried to unplug for the weekend, which was good, and I came back to you know a slew of slew of news, mostly about Sparrow being uh, bought by Google. Yeah, I was gonna um, say while was, you're away, uh, everybody bought everyone else. Nobody has an independent company anymore. Yeah, that, that's what I heard. I heard it's just it's Google and Facebook now. That's all there is. Why would you need anything else? We've got everything covered under those two umbrellas. Mm-hmm. So uh, just come on in and uh, cash out your four hundred one k and begin. Are you are you guys Sparrow users? No. You know, I actually wasn't a Sparrow user. Um, I'm kind of – I have so many systems built into the Gmail interface on the web that I can't, like, divorce myself of it. Uh, see, I actually – it's funny. I, I switched um, about three to four days ago. <laughs> oh, so no. I really Good picked investment. the worst Good possible investment. time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was me buying a MacBook the day before the keynote. It was maybe a bad choice. but uh, <laughs> So tell us about tell us about those three or four days, Matt. I want to hear about – Every aspect of those three or four days. I have to say they were good. I'm I'm an Apple Mail user, um, so I'm used to everything being really slow and clunky. And I finally decided I, I decided a long time ago that I can't use Apple Mail for Gmail because the interface is so bad. So I switched to the Gmail interface, which is fine, but it doesn't do a great job with notifying you when you get an email. And the Gmail notifier basically just lets you know that you've had an email in your inbox for three months. So it's not hugely useful. So hey, I finally decided hey, hey, to. Hey Matt, hey, hey Matt, there's, there's an email in here. Did you, did, did you did you want to read me? Maybe respond. <laughs> Your mom sent you a link like four months ago. Were you interested? Look at look at this cat. Look at this cat doing something cute. Oh, it's so adorable. Yeah. Um. So I finally took a trip to the app store and decided to get a new client, and that apparently was like the day before Sparrow was acquired. So uh-huh. it is a really great email client, but I guess they're going to shut down all development of it. Yeah, like it's just going to stay as is until somebody decides to take the website down. That's kind of, I mean, I get to, that's kind of what happened to the Twitter app when that was bought by, or sorry, the Tweety app when that was bought by Twitter and turned into Twitter. Yeah. Um, kind of just became this Mac app that doesn't get updated ever. Well, the, the difference though is that the Twitter app became Tweety, where like I don't know if Gmail is going to change things to be like Sparrow. No, I don't think they are. I mean, I guess what they could do is they could launch a Mac app for Gmail and just rebrand Sparrow, which I actually think would be really great. Cause that would be fun. Yeah, it'd be great. Then they would be, at least have a reason to continue development of it, but um, I'm not sure if there's as much incentive. Yeah, because this was a talent acquisition, right? Uh, that's what everybody's saying that it is. That's what uh, everybody said. Um, Marco Arment wrote an article about it, kind of explaining that this was a talent acquisition and then saying, you know, if you don't want to lose talented independent developers, you better support them, which... <laughs> I don't know if that's totally fair because I think a lot of people actually did support Sparrow and buy like a, a $10 app or a, a however much it was on the iPhone. I think a lot of people did try to support it. I, it may yeah. just be that there aren't enough people who need an email client who can support such a thing. Yeah, I thought that was a weird part of his article. He was like, do whatever you can to support them. And it's like, well, people bought it. I don't know what else you want us to do. Just start sending them donations to say, please don't sell out. We love this product. We want it to continue to exist. I mean, it's hard for, it's hard for a user base, I think, to uh, – to compete with someone like Google bringing, what, is it $25 million that it was for the uh, acquisition, something like that? Yeah, Jesus. and it, you, no matter how well you're supported, if, if somebody throws that kind of money at you, I would, I would say you'd be pretty hard-pressed to not sell out. Yeah, and I was I – was, I, there's a lot of people that are mad about it on Twitter and talking about how they were abandoning their users and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. It's like you can't – I don't think you can accuse somebody of that sort of thing when there's that much money on the line. It's like, of course, anybody in a situation I think would make a similar decision. 
Because it's, it's not necessarily about greed all the time. It's about financial stability, and you know, I don't right? Know, you, you don't know. You don't know the, per- the situation of those people's lives. It's hard for you to pass judgment on them. There is also this part where you pay your nine dollars one time, and you expect everything else in the future to be free and to be great. Yep. And I, I actually am not really sure how that's a, a business model that works. Because I, I guess we're all used to buying a product, and it's just like a static product that sits in your home. It's supposed to last a certain amount of time, but. Even that has a shelf life. It's not supposed to get updated, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, and people need to understand that paying the 10 bucks or whatever, you're getting the application in its current form. If they update it, fantastic. Lucky you. If not, then, you know, they get bought by Google and they're going to do whatever they want now. Uh, there's the the Instagram deal. And, you know, they bought them for like a billion dollars. But Instagram is still getting updates. It's still going to have future stuff, uh, you know, developed on it and that sort of thing. So I, my question is why on earth aren't things like Sparrow and all these other things, even though they're getting bought out, are just being kind of closed up instantly? Well, I think the difference between Sparrow and Instagram is I'd be willing to bet Instagram has like thousand times more user base. Um, so you just don't – you don't want to lose those people and, and Facebook's whole business model is acquiring people. Oh, so true. that makes – that seems very clear to me. The Sparrow acquisition, if it's a talent acquisition, it's like, okay, so this is just how much money it costs to, to hire a good developer, which seems fine. And if you want to shut down the software, that wasn't really your goal in the beginning. I, I can see a clear difference there. Yeah, and it's good developers that are working in the email space and are intimately familiar with probably the Google API and a lot of things that are you know, really helpful for putting them in that position. And the thing to remember is that they're not really getting any new people because most people are probably using Sparrow for Gmail anyway. So it's not like they're introducing people to Google, which yeah. is obviously hard to That's do anyway. That's true. I, I do admit, you know, I don't agree with people being upset and especially people saying that, you know, they're selling out and, you know, doing something unfair. But it does make me sad to see a lot of these small development shops, you know, close up shop and nail the doors closed and go work for one of these big companies. Yeah, that really bums me out because I at this point it happens all the time, and it's almost like the hiring model for Facebook and Google. Google they don't have open spots anymore; they just buy people. Yeah, I actually have a, a really good friend of mine. I'm not going to drop any names, but I had a good friend of mine that worked for a very large tech company in, in this sort of space. Um, and then while he was working there, another very big tech company tried to hire him, and he asked the recruiter, you know, like you know, why do you guys always pursue people that you know already have jobs? And the recruiter told them straight up. They never, ever, you know, post or take resumes or accept uh, ap- applications from people that don't currently have jobs for their upper-level positions. There's no way they're going to hire somebody new. You're already going to be in a job. Otherwise, they assume you're not you're not very talented at what you're doing. I mean, I can understand that approach. Like, just getting, like, portfolios at Pentagram is – I mean, I don't have to tell you that we get a lot of portfolios that are unsolicited. Mm-hmm. And it is – it is a challenge to go through them and kind of understand what you're getting into. I mean, you can see someone's work, and that's one thing, but a huge part of what you're what you're giving somebody is your work ethic and your kind of un- ability to understand new things. Mm. It just can't all be conveyed through this kind of resume and portfolio system, or, or you know, whatever Google or Facebook might require. You kind of want to see someone in a working environment to figure out how they really handle a job uh, yeah and, and i guess yeah. if you're that i guess if you're that big and you can offer that much money and stuff you probably uh can use that as your first line of filtering out the the riffraff you just say someone's doesn't have a job we're not hiring them slightly depressing if we ever lose jobs right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you need a job to get a job you're yeah. fired yeah one thing about sparrow that uh so I, I have my uh business partners and roommates all use sparrow so i've seen it a good bit and one of the reasons that i, I never adopted it was partially because i have this unreasonable hate for any app that uses the sort of Twitter, Lauren Brichter icons on the left in a dark bar sort of layout. 
just because I feel like so many apps adopted that layout that it wasn't the right fit for. Like, right. uh, like Lauren did a great job designing the Twitter app for, for desktop, and I wished that the Twitter would keep updating that thing and improving it, because now it's starting to fall apart slowly at the seams. But, you know, there's so many people that adopted that interface after that successful, you know, app came out, and so few of them it works for. So I, I saw that layout for Sparrow, and I said, this is, I'm not, I'm not getting into this. That, I, I can understand that. It does, I will say, I think it does work in that setting, but you're right that that was a, a trend for a while, and it doesn't really work for everybody kind of unfortunate to see people design things that way that they think they can they they pick a style first and then they uh retrofit their app for it yeah it is it's a bummer because that's you know against everything that at least i believe in about design about making something the interface and experience totally tailored to what it is that you're doing and sending or receiving email is very different from you know browsing twitter or, so i wish that uh you know the app itself was more tailored to that experience. I, again, I haven't used it, so I can't say it's not. But I, I assume from seeing it that it was not as well considered as I wanted it to be because it just sort of had the exact same interface. This actually opens up a lot of questions I've I've been thinking about recently about interfaces and. Uh, things that are similar between interfaces. I noticed that Apple. Um, I don't know when you put this in the doc, but Apple patented the disappearing scroll bar. Right, yeah, I actually, I put that in there. I was actually just thinking of that too, that, uh, I mean, this could be a conversation about patent trolls or it could be a conversation about user interface, but the thing I just thought was interesting, it, it definitely is a problem with patents, but isn't that just the most obvious choice moving forward? How Once you have a touchscreen, how do you not design that? Exactly, and it's to me it's also a situation of, you know, the scroll bar was an innovation back in the day, and making it go away when you're not using it, to me, is not a new thing. It's just taking an old thing and, you know, changing it slightly. And so, I, it, the, obviously, the line where you can patent something in software is blurry, if not non-existent. So I think it, we can agree broken. It's clearly, clearly... Oh, yeah, the system clearly is... Clearly broken. I, yeah. Agreed. So, I mean, the question comes down to how will Apple use patents like this? I know a lot of the big companies sort of armor up for a mutually assured destruction sort of situation where... Google has these million patents, so Apple's got to have these other millions, so neither of them can ever sue each other for stuff. Yeah, I, I, I hope it's really just an arms race between the big guys, because unfortunately what it does mean is you could take down the little guys really, really easily. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that, that the disappearing scroll bar won't become ubiquitous as touchscreens become ubiquitous. Designing a scroll bar any other way seems counterintuitive. Yeah, especially because is it part of the human interface guidelines yet for Apple's products? I feel like it's something that's integrated into the operating system. So if you're designing a Mac mm -hmm. app, for example, Apple surely is not going to want you to use a non-disappearing scroll bar inside of Lion or Mountain Lion, correct? Is that a safe Right, assumption? of course. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, yeah. no, I think that's fair. And having used, you know, like a newer MacBook with Lion on it, pretty much all the scroll bars disappear. Uh, it's just part of the user interface guidelines. So you could, you could fight against it. I'm assuming they're not going to sue anyone who's developing for them. But then again, you never know. Apple does have a tendency to, to steal from their own developers or to crush their own developers if they decide that that's what they need to do. Yeah, so the idea that, I don't know, this whole patent thing kind of seems like a double-edged sword, or at least like it's, it's favoritism on which patents really matter and which ones shouldn't be touched. Right. So like Google has this whole thing with this search stuff that a lot of times they say, no, don't dare touch our search patents. Like these are ours. These are like a lot of hard work. But then they turn around and literally say that Apple should not have these patents for all this touchscreen stuff and all their phones because it's so ubiquitous now that 
everybody's doing it, so it's it's a standard. It's not patent. This is the main problem I have with any sort of software patents is people seem to be able to patent the most obvious solutions to things, and I don't really understand how a lot of, like a lot of things that are patented. I don't really understand how a lot of modern web apps or mobile apps are supposed to exist without these kind of obvious solutions. Mm-hmm. The most famous one being like the Amazon One Click. If you want to store your information and buy something, Amazon owns a patent of that. And I don't really understand how we weren't all going to arrive there anyway. How you, Once you have a device that has all your information on it and it also can purchase things because it has credit card information on it, who's who's not smart enough to think at some point, maybe we want to save this for later? Yeah, That's and it, it, it's interesting though because it's kind of like you could make a very similar argument about physical like product patents. Like someone designs the best light bulb and it's like, oh, obviously we're all going to arrive at the design that works eventually – but you got there first, so you know you have some sort of claim to make money and royalties off that idea for some period of time. Right. And, and I, I, think the, I think the main problem is that software is just so much faster. The development – so if you're inventing the light bulb and you, you know, you're Thomas Edison or whatever and you invent that thousandth light bulb that works and burns for a long period of time and is sustainable, it's very difficult for someone to recreate that immediately, especially upon just seeing your light bulb in action. Whereas if you're a software development company, if you're a website, you put some interaction out there, you're Amazon, you develop one-click ordering. Someone can see that and, you know, in a matter of days, turn around and spit out a very, very similar thing. Which right. I think it's caused a lot of people to push back against patents in the software industry. Well, and software guys are – I think it's getting to the point where it's minutia. Like, I mean, there being a patent for the slide-to-unlock thing is a little specific or, you know, a disappearing scroll bar is a little specific. It's not exactly a light bulb. Yeah, and the other thing about software is that everything is sort of piecemeal. You can take things and, and pull them, plug and play them, and everything sort of is – people are trying to patent little components that in and of themselves are not a complete product but are instead you know, the, the guts and the gears of something larger, which as soon as you start having to worry about where all of your little pieces are coming from and who's got the intellectual property for, for that kind of scrolling or that kind of navigation, uh, it gets really difficult to build something without stepping on somebody's toes. I guess the greater problem is that you were talking about software development being so fast. It, there is this kind of human tendency that even like minor incremental – or I don't know if it's a human tendency or the tendency of innovation or the, the way of innovation, but – that these minor incremental changes or accomplishments really lead other people towards the same path of innovation. It reminds me of people setting setting records in sports. You know, somebody breaks the four-minute mile, and it takes people years and years and years and years to do that. And then once somebody breaks it, now it's this accomplishment that's been passed, and people do it all the time. This year in football, nobody had broken Dan Marino's passing yard record. And then finally this year, two quarterbacks in one year break the 5,000-yard passing record. Huh. Which just seems like the way software goes, but it goes so much faster than that that I don't know how patents can ever keep up with such a thing. Well, yeah, and my understanding of the patent office is that for the longest time they didn't accept software patents because they held software to be something that was unpatentable. It wasn't a unique innovation. And then they basically realized, hey, the world's going this way. We're missing out on all these filing fees and all of this money that we're going to get. So they started accepting software patents even though they originally felt like it wasn't something that made sense. We just opened the floodgates for you know the situation we're in now. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with a lawyer about this, and what something he said to me that I thought was kind of crazy was that patents were originally invented so that people wouldn't be afraid to share their ideas. It make I mean, it makes sense originally, right? You don't if you have this brand new light bulb and you don't want everyone to steal it from you, uh-huh. you would never share your ideas. But at this point, patents have become so broken that it actually is really preventing people from sharing their ideas because they might have 
fragments of other ideas that they could never possibly know are patented in their idea. In the same area of intellectual property and sharing of ideas and stealing of ideas, did you guys notice the uh, Jack Daniels cease and desist letter they sent to the author of that book that where the cover looked like the label of a Jack Daniels bottle? I, I did, and uh, that was an incredibly impressive lawyer letter. I've never seen a lawyer letter that seemed to be written by a human being. Yeah, the cease and desist itself was really friendly, which is why it sort of made the rounds and people were sharing it because of its you know friendliness, and it was out of the ordinary for a regular cease and desist letter. But I'm more interested in just the fact that they were asked to cease and desist in the first place because, to me, the cover was... I thought it would at least fall under parody, as I understand it, a fair use. And so it got me thinking right. a lot about the relationship between parody and stealing and how that relationship is so tenuous and pretty much entirely determined by who's taking a thing from who. You know, right. like like it's it's fairly easy for, you know, you or I to parody the Coke logo or something without pissing anybody off. But if Coke were to take one of our things and use it in advertisement, you know, the whole world would be at arms. So uh, I was hoping we could start a conversation just about the, uh, the nature of parody and uh, reappropriating visuals fairly and unfairly. In that same conversation with the lawyer I mentioned a second ago, I actually brought up this question of like, what is the line between parody and stealing? And there's no real answer. It's kind of like that, that kind of common knowledge that if you change something 80%, then it becomes your own. Do you remember this during the like Shepard Ferry stealing the Obama image? Yes, and yeah, yeah. If he yeah. changes it a certain amount, then all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore. That's actually not true. That's just something that's like the urban myth or the common idea of it. There's no real line except for something a judge is allowed to decide at some point. It's a very open idea, and I actually don't really know where to draw the line between two things. I feel like it's one of those things where I can see a parody and say that's clearly a parody, but I don't know when I can differentiate between something clearly ripping something off and clearly being a parody, but I do see both examples in the world. Because I'm looking at the image right now, yeah, there's a blatant similarity between the two, but at the same time, you're like, well, the, the guy's not really selling whiskey. Um, right. So, like, for me, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, it's a parody, and it's either one, using the imagery to sell to people who are attached to Jack Daniels, or two, it was within context of the actual uh, product. Actually, I'm just going to describe it just so people have a, a sense of it before they get a chance to click the link. But it does <laughs> – Description. All it says is, picture the label to the bottle <laughs> and then picture it on a book with different words. But it's exactly but it the same. Says, it says broken piano for president where you'd see Jack Daniels and the author's name where you'd see Tennessee whiskey. And it said old number seven, it's a picture of a hamburger. I guess one problem is, Dan, you mentioned it's not selling whiskey. It's really not clear what it's making fun of. I mean, beyond evoking a feeling of, like, southernness and Tennessee-ness, uh -huh. what is the joke? Television and sketch comedy or something, like, a parody is usually to take somebody down or to make fun of somebody. It's satire. There's some reason for it existing. I can't really find a reason for this existing. I haven't read the book. But if I'm just glancing at the cover, where's the connection? Yeah, I, I, I didn't get it either. And to your point earlier, Matt, I think that in, in practice, whether or not something is parody or stealing really comes down to whether the company that you are stealing slash parodying what they think. Because in reality, you know, this designer or author is not going to go to court against Jack Daniels over this. There's no right. way. So if the company sends a cease and desist, the person is going to cease and desist, and that's just going to be the end of it. So I think that uh, in practice, it's just a matter of can you do something without stepping on the company's toes? And if you do, then, you know, you lost and you got to, you know, pull it back. 
that is, I mean, that is true. That is like the most practical way of approaching parody. But it is challenging to to realize that nobody's going to draw a line in the sand and tell you what you can and can't do. You just kind of have to do it and see how it goes. I mean, you can try to have good judgment about stuff, but no one's going to make it clear for you. So here's a question for you. If you guys had some big company, maybe a whiskey company, maybe something else, and somebody did this to your your label, and it was very clearly – I mean, this is very clearly straight. We pulled from the label. There's no question that the person was – was intentionally doing it would you feel what would, what would your reaction be i would first look at the thing and i would say like if this is making <laughs> how fun fair of, me, of you to look at the thing first <laughs> i know to be fair i'm sure there are plenty of people that would hear about it and send a letter that is true actually i i, I laugh at you but i think you're right yeah i would take a look at the thing and i would assess whether this is actually like some sort of satire if there is something it is making fun of that has any relevance if it does i would let it go if it does not, I would send a letter because you are obligated to protect your trademark. I mean, assuming I have a trademark on the thing. Mm-hmm. But if you don't defend your trademark, you will lose it. People have lost trademarks. Kleenex lost their trademark. And yeah. now, I mean, granted, Kleenex is like the word we use for tissue, but they don't have a trademark on that word. Xerox lost their trademark because they have allowed Xerox to become the ubiquitous word for copies. I mean, there are benefits to, I guess, losing your trademark because it probably means you're so ubiquitous in the culture that that's just what the word means. I'm sure Google will lose it at some point in the future. Yeah, I, th- I think Adobe was worried about losing the uh, trademark on Photoshop. I know for a while they were telling people to stop saying Photoshop when it was photo-manipulated image. Right, um, right. So, oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'll play the, the side of the company and say, yeah, you have to go after it or you're going to lose it. This is, And actually, I remember this was a thing for Dig for a while. Dig encouraged all this development and stuff, but then people would start using the name Dig in these like third-party apps, and they had to just they 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 wrote like pretty nice letters explaining the situation. But the situation was exactly that: like, look, if we don't go after you, and we don't go after anybody, eventually somebody's we're going to end up in court, and we're going to have to show all these examples and say, "Well, I'm sorry, we never tried, so you lose it." Have you guys ever heard of Johnny Cupcakes? Yeah, of course. So he had this bit of a tizzy a few years ago where, you know, like his style is very, very well known. I mean, it's cupcakes on stuff. And there was this whole thing about how Urban Outfitters had taken a few of his ideas, slightly tweaked them, and then made a lot of money off of these T-shirts. And it was that whole thing that because he didn't have the trademark or any of the other, you know, legal mumbo jumbo, they kind of got away with it for a while. And I, I feel like it's almost the same thing where he saw that it was a complete ripoff. It really wasn't a parody at all. And it was just right. that, that whole – the legal finesse that he didn't have. Right. Well, he I mean he just didn't really have the funds to back him um, at the time. And you know it was kind of like pointless to pursue it because he'd end up losing more money than he would make on the sale of those T-shirts. Yeah. And then that stuff happens all the time. You know, these big companies totally. take stuff from you know small designers. So people like – Dan Cassaro and Curtis Jenkins, I know, like every other week have something at like Anthropology or some store has taken and slapped on a t-shirt. Hmm. Totally shamelessly. Uh, I think probably because they know that the, these individual people have no chance of coming after them. That's true. Uh, when, when I, I wanted to get back to the giant cupcakes thing for a second because one thing I thought was interesting, I'm just going to give a little background and say like I grew up in kind of the neighborhood really near Johnny Cupcakes and like a lot of my friends bands were like sponsored by him from day one you know a lot of respect for that guy he worked really hard to get to where he is that being said he has relied so heavily on parody and has uh <laughs> crossed that line a lot in his yeah, work yeah. yeah he sure has that it is it is difficult <laughs> like i i was that i was part of that outraged crew of people like who wanted to throw cupcakes at the uh, urban outfitters store 
you know, it was funny coming from him because so many of his designs are just like straight up taking someone else's design, putting a cupcake on it, and calling it a parody. Uh-huh. Which this is another one of those things. I don't. If it's not really making fun of anybody for any like biting or serious reason, I I don't really see the point of why it's called a parody. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to take away from from you know creative expression, but like what do words mean at that point? Yeah, and that brings up the whole context issue. You know, if it's Johnny Cupcakes taking from some giant organization, people are going to be less upset about it than if it's you know Urban Outfitters coming and taking one of his things. So I mean, right. and, and that's sort of that's a really tough line to straddle. You know, how how popular is too popular before you can't satirize and parody things anymore without people getting mad. It's it's a mess. So that all being said, getting back to the letter though, I do have to say, just in terms of like no, knowing that this letter could potentially get out. Very nice way of writing letter because it doesn't make you look like a terrible, evil company. It gets your point across, and it gets you some publicity in, in the meanwhile. Like, I, I do – after reading this, I don't really see why you would send an angry cease and desist letter anymore. And, unless it's, like, the third one. Especially, I mean, the, the publicity for them over the past couple of days has been fantastic. Like, everyone's been sharing this thing around. It's been seen more than, I'm, I'm sure, many of their actual paid advertisements. And it's given people a positive opinion of the brand. And if any judge ever has to see it in the future, they clearly know Jack Daniels tried. So, yeah. trademark yeah. defended. Yeah, and, and to go back to what you said, Matt, I had actually not... I was not really aware of the fact that you were legally required to defend your trademark to, to maintain it. Because I, yes. I was looking at this, and I was like, man, if I was Jack Daniels, like, this is only, like, this person's taking my thing, but it's clearly my thing. I'm just going to let him use that. That's going to make my brand stronger. I think it takes a bit of, like, confidence in your brand to say that my brand's strong enough that people are going to associate my product with that book and not the other way around. I am actually interested in that, like, that line of, once your brand is strong enough, do you need a trademark anymore? Or do you just that like, there are enough people in the world that understand that this is the way it is, that who cares? You're You're making more money off of people using it colloquially that it doesn't matter. Like Coke. Right. I, I mean, Coke still owns their trademark, but uh, unless I'm wrong. but Coke still owns a color of red. Yeah, they right. uh, they've got yeah. that all pinned down. It's real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, e- even stuff like that, like like the use of color or something. I remember there was a case a while ago where T-Mobile tried to claim the use uh, or the, the ownership of their magenta, which is interesting, but it's really like – the only person that owns the color is the person who uses it the most, and you can actually hold up the color and ask someone what they think it means. That's the real test of it. It doesn't matter if you say you own it. Who cares? This is kind of off the beaten path. This is not on the dock. But there was a recent episode, I want to say, of Radiolab about color. And we talked about different animals that have more cones in their eyeballs to perceive colors. Did any of you catch that? Yes. No. Yes. And they talked about the... But, it, but uh, explain. Yeah, so explain there's this, they talked about uh, how, you know, we as humans, I believe, have three co- three cones in our eyes to perceive different spectrums of color. And, you know, some animals have four or five, which is pretty crazy. They can see all sorts of colors we can't see. They can see into the infrared and ultraviolet spectrums a little bit. Then they mentioned the mantis shrimp, which was already one of my favorite animals, because it's got these, like, punching arms that can break through aquarium glass, and they're, like, these beautiful, badass, giant shrimps. Uh, but I had no idea. They apparently have, like, 16 cones in their eyes, so they see colors that are just we can't even, like, imagine. And I thought it was so interesting that uh, the nature of your eyes are, I mean, obviously how you perceive the world around you, but I wonder how different their perception of like space and uh, composition and stuff would be if we could have eyes like that. It is interesting that we always tend to assume that we're like the peak of evolution, but that's just because 
you know, we choose to perceive it that way. And they're we like, made so the rules, just, so. We make the rules. We yeah, invented we, evolution, we, damn it. We made that word up. <laughs> you make the word, you make the rules. But yeah, I mean, you look at so many other creatures in there. These creatures can see color better. The hawk can see further. Uh, he can fly as well. Like, there's so many other examples of us not being the most superior animal. <laughs> oh, also, we can't fly. The fuck's up with right. that? <laughs> get, get in the game, people. If you're interested in supporting the On The Grid podcast, we have an interesting sponsorship model available. You can email us with your website, mobile application, maybe a logo or a poster, some sort of design work, and we will critique it on air, uh, both good and bad, which provides twofold value for you. One, you get some critical feedback on your thing to make it better. And two, you get some uh, ears that get to hear about your uh, some of your product. And we're going to try to be as honest as possible. So we're not going to hold back, but we're at least going to point some people into your website, to your app, whatever you want us to critique. And hopefully it's a work in progress so we have something to actually discuss. And it's not going to be something where we say, oh, you should use this blue or this texture or anything like that. But really just give it an honest critique to say, this is what our thoughts are. Maybe this could help you out. Maybe this will guide you towards a final solution. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call if you want to provide a short little description and some context. Uh, our number is 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. And if you mail us, we'll send you rates and we'll tell you what we need from you. An image, so a little bit of context so we know what we're talking about. The, the why I prefer a featureless app is it was an article, but I mean, it's, you can just hear the title and know what we're talking about. It's kind of the Unix philosophy of do one thing and do it well, which as kind of like the apps become more prevalent and we're so used to having these different apps for different things. I actually, I tend to agree that this is kind of the way to go as opposed to these old systems. It makes me think of like Norton antivirus where every single year they would have to it used to be this thing that would keep viruses off your computer. And then next year it had to have a thing because it needs a couple more bullet points in the box. And then the next year it has to have a couple more things because it needs more bullet points in the box. And before you know it, starting up antivirus, uh, Norton antivirus is going to take about as much time as it does to start up your entire machine. The movement away from that, the movement towards being a notes app and just being a really good notes app or being like a to-do app and just being a really great to-do app. Uh, what, what Did you guys read this article and do you guys have thoughts on this? Yeah, I read the article. I thought the article itself was kind of a, a puff piece. I didn't hear anything like right. Really, it's like really you, unique. You can have the title and you don't really need. Yeah, much you don't have to. That. You don't have to read the article. The guy's like, I sure do hate when apps are complicated and got stuff I don't need. I wish they just did what I wanted all the time. Right. Um, but I, I do think there was one interesting thing in it for me, which is that he sort of had the revelation that mobile has, in a lot of ways, pushed this kind of app development forward. Where I think before we had mobile design in, in so much in the, in the limelight in the forefront. Uh, apps were doing more and more things every year, and it was like, oh, we got all this, all these pixels. Let's fill them up with stuff. But you know, right. the, the the restraints of a mobile screen and the prevalence of mobile as a platform has really pushed you know simple things that do you know one thing well again to the to the forefront. I, I think across the board, which is which is really nice. It's uh, it's kind of like the essence of what design should be. I mean, it really just makes your think about putting more restrictions on yourself so you can do something well. Like it's like the simplest concept in the world. Just 
do something well. But we get so caught up in trying to fill space. It, it reminds me of like going to client meetings and them seeing a white space on the page and thinking, well, the logo could be bigger then. I'm, pa- is- I'm paying for all these inches. Look at these wasted <laughs> white inches. <laughs> it's like, better use them. That's, that's one of my favorite conversations to have with uh, – back in the early days when I was making websites – I would always have people that wanted me to like jam everything above the fold back when the fold was still a huge thing people would talk about. Uh, people I, still, I hate to break it to you, but people still have strong yeah, feelings about the I, fold. I know, I know some people do, but it used to be like, there were, so many, there were a few websites, back in the day, websites wouldn't even scroll that much. I feel like we've gotten to a point where there's a lot of really tall pages. I, I think we're moving forward on the fold issue, I hope. I hope we're evolving on that issue. But I used to always explain to my clients, hey, pixels are free. Like We, like we can have as many of these as we want. If this is a print piece... You know, you got to pay for more paper, which is a luxury. But here, we got as many pixels as we need. Let's take our time and, and let this stuff breathe. For me, this article reminded me of something I've been thinking about a lot, which is not that apps these days are necessarily feature bloated, um, but more that everything, everything is just so drenched in social that I, I'm just starting to like get really tired of it. Not just in the sense that I don't want to share everything I'm doing all the time, but in the sense that having this really embedded social layer in everything clutters the interactions with all of these different applications. You should tweet about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard anybody say. <laughs> oh, that should, uh, be a bill, that should be a billboard in Atlantic City. Just, yeah, you should, you should yeah. tweet about that, bro. Uh, uh, no, so I, I'm actually, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about making applications that do something, not just do one thing well, but do that one thing well and don't try and in- integrate all these different social levels. I mean, it, it's really hard. I mean, I, it, I'm sure you got you guys have designed products before. It's so difficult to say, look at all the technical possibility we have. We can add social stuff. We can make it so your friends can see what song you're listening to. We can do it. It's possible. And it's so hard to say no in that instance and that we say that's not valuable. We don't need that. I don't know. Like uh, something that I've come across, though, is kind of like everybody's doing a big comparison to what Facebook's doing right now. And I mean, for all the iPhone users that they've noticed that Facebook has, you know, the Facebook app, the camera app, the, the messages app, and those are all, you know, really good about focus of only doing one thing at a time. But I think that there's this kind of dangerous trend where it's like the platform sort of generation where it, Facebook has big bloated website and they did a really good job of cutting each individual piece out for mobile, but they're not actually like skipping back to say, okay, how can we reflect this on other platforms like desktop, where it's still just like this big bloated thing. Right. And I, I guess that's the question is, is that a problem with the way Facebook is dealing with their website? Or is it a problem with what Facebook is doing with their website in that, like, should they just be focusing on the thing that they do well and do that? Or is it good that they're coming out with a messenger app? They're trying to become your email. They're trying to become your social network. They already are your social network. They're trying to become a camera app. They're trying to become everything. I mean, that that could just be uh, uh, another way of, of asking the question we started with, uh, uh, or not question, but statement, do, do one thing and do it well. I, there is a part of me that like worries about the fragmentation of everything. As much as I was praising the, the simple apps uh, at the beginning, I mean, how many? How much do we really need to break things up? And like, do we need to have ten app screens? And do we need to have everything broken into the tiniest little bit of fragment? Because at some point, it is just a way of selling you another thing. Yeah, Evernote does that a lot. They have a lot of random products that, honestly, I don't know why I would ever use. But it's it's singular focused things that are all individual apps. But it's under the umbrella of the Evernote, you know, facade. 
Remind me, Matt. You know, you mentioned you know should, should Facebook stick to the one thing it does well? What is the one thing Facebook does well? Let you like stalk ex girlfriends and feel bad about yourself. That's the only thing I ever have done on Facebook well. I the- was gonna say. I mean, look, we give we give Facebook a lot of shit, but it does make it really easy if you if you meet a person and you don't have you don't give them your email address, you don't give them your phone number, you just say find me on Facebook. That is super easy, and they do that very well. I mean, it's it's hard to criticize that part of it. Is there anybody else? Who've ever done this in the history of time? Where all you have to do is tell someone your name and say, "Look me up," and you can do that. Yeah, MySpace. Duh. Oh, yeah. No, though. Yeah, except MySpace. MySpace you <laughs> I know you're joking. You couldn't but... give anybody your name. You had to give them your like triple yeah. X unicorn sixty nine. Uh, uh, Dan XX is straight as XS. Or whatever, <laughs> whatever your hey, name was at not, the time, Dan. Do not bring that up. <laughs> talking about it. Dan X kills XU, but um. <laughs> No, but it, that, that wasn't the solution to the problem. That's the same thing as an email address. It does solve the problem of, like, social interaction and, and transferring that to the internet. I guess it's a pretty good white pages. You're right. Right. I'll, I'll concede but every, that. But everything else could potentially be seen as fluff. I mean, also, like, they also do a really good idea, a good uh, job of, ta- you know, tying people to their photographs, which is good for some people, creepy for others. But, you know, they do a good job of that. That's also true. All right, look at you explaining the actual value of Facebook to me. Fine. Does a really good job tagging photos. You're right. You, you yeah. should really upload your Atlantic City photos uh, to Facebook and then tweet about it. Oh, I did not document that at all. Very intentionally. Uh, I, I, I don't oh, want to remember that. I'm trying to move, move past it. Okay. I did have photos from the Satmus bus. I had a photo of my knees not fitting in the seat. And it had a photo of a, of a pink Mustang, not an old pink Mustang, a new pink Mustang. So it was it was very sad out the window. And the photo of, and the photo of the guy throwing out the farm on the steering wheel. That that would make a nice set. I, I could tag my sadness in each of those photos. First thing to make a Facebook page specifically for my sadness. I, I feel bad for the guy who actually does have the Facebook username my sadness because I promise you that exists. So, so anyway, speaking of sadness, um, one of the other articles that was up was the cost of free donuts, 70 years of regret, and all sorts of sadness a long time ago. This was a nice transition. This was yeah. something we talked about last week, and it's just uh, it's an interesting reaffirmation of something we were discussing, which was once you make something free, it's really hard to pay for it later. I mean, we were talking about it in the context of apps. We were, I think we were also talking about it in the context of journalism. I know, like, magazines are struggling like hell to gets people to pay for their articles that were previously online for free. Now they want you to subscribe to them. How are you supposed to do that? And uh, even like the daily, I think they're probably going to shut their doors pretty soon. But the cost of donuts is a story about the American Red Cross and how they used to offer soldiers donuts for free at their kind of uh, mobile stations. And during World War II, there was a really short period of time where they started charging these soldiers for the donuts. And uh, you'd think it'd be like a kind of minor thing and and everyone would let it go. But what it did was it built resentment in a very specific generation of people that never forgot it. And all they can attach to the Red Cross to now is negative feelings, which I thought was like such an interesting look at at free and economics in, uh, in a time that has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. People don't remember the fact that they got free donuts from somebody for... X period of time, which you would think would give you a pretty positive association. They remember the day it was taken away and how depressing that was. 
the most interesting quote for it was a a Planet Money story, but the most interesting quote was it went from being like your mom to more like the corner store, which is really interesting. It's not that it went from being a free thing to not a free thing. It went from being a thing you have positive associations with to something you either have like kind of eh, associations with or, or negative. It's it's just a, a totally different way of thinking about it. That I feel like we all think about it in the terms of zero to one dollar is plus one dollar, but it's not that at all. It's an entire shift of perception. Oh, good example of that is like the office I work in. They feed the entire company lunch and dinner. If you're there for lunch, awesome. If you're there for dinner, awesome. You're always fed. And right. it's almost as if like we walked into the office one day and they're saying, oh, sorry, we can't you know, afford catering or we're not going to do it anymore. So you're going to have to buy your own lunch and dinner. But then that would be – and are you saying that that would create huge resentment in you or – Well, yeah. Yeah, because a big thing – it's actually a really big part of our culture is that we're able to come in and we don't have to worry about going out and get lunch. Uh, we have this big eating – open eating area where we just grab something to eat and then usually we keep working either you know in the eatery or uh, back at our desks. So you right. know, it's kind of an efficiency thing but also – if it's not there anymore, we're like, okay, one, I have to pay for my lunch isn't ideal because I haven't had to pay for it for a long time. And two, it's like I have to go out and find food now? That totally screws up my routine. It's actually that, – that's, that's it's been made uh, huge news in like you know Google books about the company culture and stuff. So everybody knows that Google offers their employees a cafeteria. Pentagram actually does the same thing, and they've been doing this for, I, I want to say, like 20 years. And it, it comes from the same place of it takes an employee a certain amount of time to go get lunch. They have to go a certain distance. They spend a certain amount of money. The certain amount of money part is not really the thing. It's the time because you pay for people's time. So mm-hmm. keeping somebody in the office has them spend less time finding food, more time just eating the food, and then getting back to work, uh, which is – a generous thing for a company to do, but also just makes sense for people to do. But I think you're right that if, if a company were to offer this service and then take it away, it would build far more resentment than if they just never offered it at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I could almost guarantee that those guys who went and got the free donuts, it just became a staple in, in their every day. And if that staple is taken out, especially when it's donuts and a very happy thing, if that's taken out, well then, you know, riots ensue. Can you guys think of anything more American than the Red Cross giving out free donuts to soldiers? <laughs> Apple pie. That shit, that's from the Red that's Cross. like a Norman. That's like a Norman Rockwell painting. It's just <laughs> such a beautiful thought. And then you fast forward to fifty years down the road, and everyone's fat. This actually, this, this is ringing true for me right now in a lot of ways. Uh, so, as you know, we're like second week out from releasing our first paid app. We've had a few free apps before that. And we were really worried about the the reviews of this paid app we were going to get because, you know, for our free app, which was totally free, I reiterate, uh, Mm -hmm. we got a ton of negative reviews of people being like, this app's pretty cool but doesn't do X, one star. I give this app a bunch of stars, people just post a Tumblr, one star. And it's like, all right, people have extreme expectations for things that are free. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. But with this, you know, paid app out there for two weeks, all the feedback has been like really positive and, what, and people have suggested features and said they would like things to exist but right. everyone that's written a review for it has been totally reasonable we get emails every day from nice people that are saying i love the app here's what i would love to see added to it here's what would add value for me just dealing with people that are willing to pay for something has been a million times better than dealing with people that are willing to take things for free 
the idea that people are rating your apps better, the paid apps are better than the free ones, is interesting. But I also think it's exactly what we talked about last week. When we, didn't we talk about gym memberships? Yeah. And it's sure that idea of if you're going to pay a certain amount of money for something, then you have to at least care that much. So yeah. people now have to pay, what is it, $5? Yeah, so it's 5 bucks people, for 4.99. Yeah, so people have to care 4.99 worth about the app, which at first makes them a fan, right? You have to be a certain you have to like it a certain amount to think that it's worth that much money. And then if you're going to rate it, you probably came into it with positive feelings because you were able to put that much money in and people who didn't have those feelings are filtered out because you can't review the app without purchasing it, correct? No, you cannot. So, but when the free version, anybody can get it. So any jerk can try it out, rate it and move on. And that might've been 10 seconds of their day. But I would assume the people that are rating your app really care about it. They've put in the time and effort. So they're going to say something thoughtful, not necessarily yeah. positive, but at least thoughtful. Yeah, it's, it's been such a positive. This is the first time, with the exception of uh, that number set I put out there, that this Pompadour numerals. This is the first time I've ever really sold something on the internet. And the experience has been so, so positive. I think for my entire life, I was always afraid that, you know, selling seven people were going to have these unreasonable expectations and no one was going to be willing to pay for it. Uh, and it hasn't been the case at all. Like, seeing people that are willing to put some money out there and then send us an email and reach out and talk to us about it has been really, really fundamentally great. And, and similarly, so the, the font that I put out there, I originally put it there for free. Totally free. Um, the Lost Type guys started up their website and wanted to use it there, so I let them use it over there, which was pay what you want. Uh, mm-hmm. And I actually got way more money from that than I would have thought, because by the time it was on the, the pay what you want model on Lost Type, it had already been on my website for free for like a year. So I figured there's no way anyone's going to pay for this. But I've gotten, I think, like right. four or 500 bucks over the past two years from people like donating to the font, which is really cool. I, oh, I like wow. that. That's impressive. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? That's but, more money than I've make, made off any of my fonts to date. <laughs> really? Are you serious? Yeah. I'm, I'm totally serious. Oh, well. Um, Jeez. And, well, you know, it's a, the League of Moogle type never had, like, a really solid uh, donation system, or at least I don't know that people have used it, and then the Google one shut down really fast. So, yeah, man, maybe I just got to go through Lost Type next time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a good experience. I mean, especially because I didn't have any plans for it. Like, I just made it for class. Anyway, so, right. but I've had some experiences with, like, that, where that's pay what you want. So you can pay any amount of money you want, and I'm sure most people pay zero. They don't have any stats on who pays zero, which is kind of a missed opportunity, but... Uh, so I'm sure almost everybody pays zero, and some people choose to give a donation, which is great. I do think there is like a there is a certain amount of guilt thing. I, I would be willing to bet that it's that the people that pay zero um, might be lower than you expect. I, I, I wish I knew. I really wish I knew because it'd be yeah. such interesting information to have. But so the interesting thing is so you can pay whatever you want, and there's a few interesting things about this. Uh, the number of people that pay less money than the PayPal fee to transfer that money is staggeringly high. So I think <laughs> right, right. That's so I thought about that. So I think that the PayPal fee is like a twenty-nine cents plus some percentage, and I would say maybe like one in five people pays less than thirty cents for the font, which just means they're giving some money to PayPal for funsies, and you know, that they, I'm not getting any of that, which is interesting. Do they? They don't necessarily know though, right? Like it doesn't say that on the um, on the pay what you want page. And no, I, I, the fine I'm, I'm sure it doesn't tell them. No, they're not reading the fine prints. They just think they're giving me thirty cents or whatever. Right. Um, which is generous of them. You know, obviously, I'm asking for anything, but it's just funny to me that I'm not getting any of that. It's just all going right to PayPal for doing essentially nothing because they're paying for a transfer that never transferred anything, so they're just giving PayPal some money. Uh, then some people, this has happened to me on three occasions now, will we'll buy the font get, with some donation associated with it, a dollar, two dollars, or whatever, uh, and then later on either report to PayPal that the money was taken out of their account uh, illegally or email me and ask for a refund of the donation, 
which is really interesting to me as well. Just wow. a thought that you, wow. Just, just just a thought that you would. So it's it's a free thing. If you want it, you just hit zero and you download it and you have it. Totally cool. Uh, yeah. And some people will you know make a donation and then when they get it, it's like not what they wanted or they decide they don't want it anymore. And so they report it as a fraudulent charge or email me and ask for a refund, which to me is just – I think it's quite funny that someone would do that and then want a refund on what is essentially a donation. Well, the, the one person that reported me to PayPal I was a little mad about because they, like, froze my account for a few days while they investigated the fraudulent charge of someone donating two bucks to me. Wow. wow. I've, uh, I've heard about stuff like that, but I've never uh, heard it happen to anyone that I know. So that's kind of wild. And it didn't yeah. cause a problem for me. Like, I don't, I don't run a business through PayPal, so it wasn't an issue. I just I had to, like, chill off my eBay auctions for a little while. But uh, Right. But so having the fun out there has been interesting just so I can like see these like interactions of people with buying things on the internet. Like the idea that someone would return it or choose to pay 30 cents as opposed to just like rounding up to a dollar. Like very interesting things about those sort of like commerce interactions. Right. I mean it is interesting the way people use money just to assign value. I mean that is what a free market is. I don't think I'm blowing anyone's mind. But um, <laughs> it makes me <laughs> – but it – it it, uh, it makes me think of back back to the the uh, commenting on an app that you purchased versus commenting on something that's free. You guys tell me if if somebody's already come up with this, and I'm I'm just reiterating a point. But uh, an interesting subscription, an interesting pay model for like uh, a site with articles or a newspaper or a magazine or something is: what if you charge people to make a comment? What if you charge like the value that they place on their feedback? So huh. you have to pay at least. I don't know, 10 cents to comment on somebody's blog. I mean, there's so many people that turn off comments because they're just spam havens and, or people just saying something mean or evil. Like I I would be willing to bet if you charge, I would even cut it down to five cents. If you can just figure out a way (laughs) to make PayPal, not uh, take a transaction (laughs) fee and you make people pay that five cents in order to say what they have to say. I'd be willing to bet instantly your blog feedback is way more thoughtful. It might be way less, but I promise you it's way more thoughtful. Yeah, on the other hand, though, trolls are like, five cents? That's nothing. I don't think so. Oh, I don't think so, Dan. I think that trolls would never, ever dream of giving any real money to be a dick. Right. Okay, that's true. And also, you have to remember that the method of payment is attached to your name, right? Like, you don't have a PayPal or credit card without your social security number attached somehow, or at least your tax ID. I wonder how many people would would then think that their comment was worth that sort of financial transaction. Like, would it actually assign that much value to their feedback? It would definitely foster much better conversation than you get from a regular blog if you just open up comments. I mean, it would it would be it'd be like uh, the brand new captcha. It would instantly kill bot traffic. Would any? I mean, maybe people would invest in this, but would a spammer invest in five cents per blog? I I, I would hope not. <laughs> That would be a scary day. No, yeah. that, that's actually I, – I love the idea of uh, just charging money instead of having a recapture. Prove you're human. Give us, give us a nickel. <laughs> I mean people – actually, that is kind of the way you activate your PayPal account, right? I, I think it's the other way, but PayPal yeah. inserts a penny into your account to verify that it's really there. Yeah, they, they, put, it in, they put it in two, uh, two deposits that are under a dollar, and so it's like right. two cent amounts, and you enter the two cent amounts, and it verifies, A, that it's a real account that can receive money, and B, that – you have access to it because you can see the value of those two transfers. And I, don't, I don't mean to take this on too much of a tans- tangent, but um, this is actually something I posted in the doc last week, but I've, I've experienced myself. I kind of can't believe it. Do you guys uh, – are you guys aware of 
spammers sending out emails saying that Google has finally caught up to them and are now ranking their sites lower on Google rankings because they previously tried to spam blogs with links back to their page and are now asking you to take it off of your site. Yeah, that is the funniest thing in the whole world to me. What? Oh, yeah. Dan, this is new to Dan. So, Dan, that <laughs> <Yeah>. is happening. <laughs> this happened. This actually happened to me not too long ago. But I got an email saying, uh, actually, I think this site was ToonWiki. And I don't mind calling them out because uh, clearly if they're doing that, they're a terrible company. So, ToonWiki sent me okay. an email saying <laughs> that they had previously posted a comment on my blog. And they'd love for me to remove that comment because it's hurting their rankings. And they said also my rankings, which is not true because my, my comments all have no follow tags or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so it's hurting their rankings and it's hurting my rankings. And it would be great if I can go ahead and remove that spam comment linking to their site. And it took wow. me a little while to figure out what they were ask- actually asking me because it seems so far-fetched that anyone would have the balls to do such a thing. But it's actually happening. And now I've gotten multiple emails for stuff like this. And uh, I, I try to make a conceited effort to go ahead and not remove that and send them an email back telling them to go fuck themselves. Get it but, done. You're an internet yeah. vigilante. You're, that's right. Don't get yourself a Red Cross donut. You but go it. ahead and go ahead and Google this. This is more prevalent than you would think. But oh, it is the, the sweetest justice I could imagine. I just I love the idea of these dick suckers just chasing their own tails <laughs> all day, and they're like, "Oh shit!" I sent out two hundred and sixty thousand emails last year trying to get comments on these blogs. Now I gotta email all those people again and tell them to take it down. To me, it just it just goes to show that if you just like if you try and cheat the system. It just don't, don't do that. It's never going to work out to your advantage. And if it does, it'll work out in your advantage for like a couple of months and then you're going to get screwed. If you just do meaningful work and be nice to people, you're going to be golden. Oh, I, I, I was thinking about hilarious. this. I was thinking about this with just the idea of SEO and thinking about the way people are SEO experts and they give you tips for stuff. But if you think about it, like the best the best SEO page, the most optimized page is just a page that is honest and gives you the information you're looking for. Yep. Yeah. That's essentially yeah, okay. what it means. That's uh, basically good. what we're talking about, right? Well, okay. Good example of like uh, being dishonest. This actually happened at a company I worked for previously. Uh, somebody from marketing came over and they said, so there's this whole like thing where if it's an H1, it gets more prevalence in the SEO stuff. And we're like, okay, whatever. Keep going. They're yep. like, well, couldn't we just sprinkle H1s throughout the entire page and just style it where it looks like normal text? Yes, you can yes, you do can. that. This is yes, America. you can. You do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, and we were like, yeah. okay, if you really want to screw over the, the company because that is probably a blacklist sort of thing, go ahead. This is the new natural selection. If you're the kind of person that wants to take some H1 tags and stick them in the content around words like... I don't know, synergy or whatever these, these button, the top of those words are now, you, you, your website's going to get screwed, which is great. I, I, I say you encourage those people that want to do that. Yes, put H1 tags around everything. I hear that's great. You know what else? Put a few hundred keywords in, in your meta tag in the header. I think the more you have there, the better. Just, more meta tags, please. Let them, let them go down this rabbit hole and shoot themselves in the foot. sound kind of evil, but I, I don't care. They're evil. We yeah, are, no, yeah, we're we talking about, Dan. Shut up. <laughs> we're good and clean and honest. We're one H, one tag kind of dudes. You know what I'm saying? This has been On The Grid, episode four. 
You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a phone call and leave us a message that we can potentially play on the show at 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. Feel free to leave feedback, links, or topic suggestions on Twitter, hashtag OnTheGrid. And don't forget to leave iTunes comments. Thanks to Girlfriends for the music. Until next week.